I stayed an extra year at Stanford right. to do my master's degree for the one sole reason. I'll tell you, there's only one okay. reason because my senior year, we were the undefeated number one ranked ultimate frisbee team in the whole country. That was an amazing team. We were undefeated, completely clean slate, right? All the way to the national championships in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Won all of our games in pool play uh, on day one. Won our semifinals. In the finals, we met the number two team in the country from the East Coast, and we lost 2017. The one and only game that we lost was in the national championship finals. The game that really mattered. The game that really mattered. Uh, so I applied for the master's program to do one more year so that I could go back to the national championships and take another shot at it. And we got to the national championships when I was in my master's year. But we lost in the semis. Oh no! <laughs> this must be a tale of redemption, Azra. Just to say we won it. No, I know, oh. I know. But life, life is not a life is not a fairy tale. Right. Uh, you learn. You learn failure. Brought to you by Mercedes Benz and BFM, you're listening to Shift, Steer, and Strive, a show that shines the spotlight on influential minds and the inspiring, as well as sometimes eccentric personalities behind them. I'm Azura Rahman. On today's episode, Azran Osman Rani. Azran has worn many hats during the course of his roller coaster career. He was the CEO of AirAsia X, the Senior Director of Business Development at Astro, and CEO for iFlix Malaysia. Azran is now laser-focused on making mental healthcare more accessible via Naluri Hidup, a digital coaching platform that aims to shrink the divide between professional help and the people who need it. Mercedes-Benz Malaysia was cool enough to drop off a CLS 450 at our studios, and Azran being Azran, jumped at the chance to get behind the wheel, while I jumped at the chance to get the interview going as we took the car for a spin. Despite the Tamantun traffic and minor bumps here and there, we somehow managed to have a meaningful conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. That's been like my my single consistent business purpose over the last 15 years. Right. Trying to change society? No, to provide services at a more affordable and accessible level. But at the same time, how do you create better services, right? It's not just, here's what's available today and people are paying 100 ringgit for it and therefore we're just making it available at 10 ringgit. But how do you actually make it better than the 100 ringgit version at 10 ringgit because you have the luxury of starting from a blank sheet of paper. So it's not about piling it high and selling it cheap, it's about just no. basically giving everyone the same access, similar access. Yeah, right. I, hopefully even better access, right? whether it is iFlix where it used to be you watch your TV shows in a room that's connected to a set-top box and if you want to watch it in another room, you've got to pay for another set-top box, right? To one where it's not just the convenience of it being on mobile, but to be able to download your show so that you can watch it when you don't have internet connectivity, when you're on an AirAsia flight or when you're uh, on an LRT ride uh, and you don't have a lot of data quota, right? So offering a better, better product at an even more affordable rate, right? right? So the, the big, um, you know, for example, uh, hopefully as, as a society, we're going to be uh, more accepting and we're going to talk a lot more about mental health, right? Now, it used to be mental health was a 
privileged service because not many people have access to a psychologist uh, where every session is 300 ringgit, sometimes 600 ringgit. If you go to a public hospital in Malaysia right now, the average waiting list is, waiting time is about nine months to get an, uh, an appointment. It's crazy, like you can't have effective therapy when you see a, uh, your therapist once every nine months. For Azran, learning is a lifelong pursuit. His thirst for knowledge means he continues to learn beyond his days on the university campus. Today, Azran pursues learning through experience, through the ups and downs of his career, and even through therapy. Why, why this interest in mental health? Well, you know, it's interesting because only now you start getting comfortable talking about, you know, for some of us, we went through episodes, right? We had uh, big challenges and for most of us, we... It was taboo, you don't talk about it because you don't want to be vulnerable. And I think one of the things I learned, especially being the CEO of an airline is, oh, you're not supposed to show vulnerability. Who do you, who do you talk to? Because you know, you're bored, so you always have to project a sense that you have things under control. You're, um, the management team under you, they're all kind of looking at you and judging you and everyone. So you don't have a lot of places to turn to, right? And yet, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot, right? And so um, you can find yourself in some very dark places. Mm-hmm. Uh, Are we talking from a personal completely, experience? Yeah, absolutely, right. absolutely. More, more right. uh, several, several episodes. So, right. um, so I think, um, you know, for me, it's finally getting to a stage where I'm willing and I can talk about it mm. because also I feel like, hey, at least now I have something that I can try to help people who are wrestling with this. And wanting to develop this app, wanting mm. to develop this kind of service, mm. um, this holistic, fully informed right. um, picture right. for mental health services, right. was it drawing from your own experience, uh, your own frustrations when you were trying to deal with these issues that you're grappling with, um, with your mental yeah. health? Yeah, so, so, so interestingly for me, uh, is with a lot of things, when you try to do something, you have to focus. You can't try to solve all the big problems. And the one part that I'm really latching on is the intersection between mental health and physical health, the intersection between mental health and chronic disease specifically, depression and diabetes, anxiety and angioplasty. Um, And because, you know, when you go through, you know, I've lost family members to uh, diabetes and cancer and, and heart disease. And actually, most people don't think about mental health issues when people are going through these episodes. Yeah. Doctors are only spending 15, 20 minutes in a consultation telling you, okay, do this, 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 this. Nurses are very focused on, you know, well, I've only got a few minutes with you. I just need you to just do this, right? And you're left to your own. And chronic disease is not something like a surgery where you can fix it with one procedure or one drug, right? You live with it. So the, the mental stress and, and the challenge you go through is massive. And most people don't have that level of care. Now, you might think that someone like Azran Osman Rani would always have had clear-cut ambitions, but that wasn't always the case. Azran's vision and purpose wasn't often that obvious, and neither were his educational pursuits. He struggled to find his place in an education system that he felt was too conventional. 
things fell into place once he changed his approach and mindset from road learning to curiosity. Um, were you a frat boy? Because yeah, I have this vision of well, so no, Ivy, yeah, but yeah. All, all, the ultimate players were kind of anti, kind of established social oh, wow. gatherings, right? So the ultimate guys were the guys who, like, no, you know, I I don't want to conform to you know fraternity structures and. Uh, other social groups, institutions, institu- institutionalized. Right. Yeah. So we're kind of. So you were the cool. No, ideas. we're kind of the dorky ones <laughs> who, who are who are misfits. Yes. Um, what was it like, though? You know, having that experience, um, well, and then coming back. Yeah. So. Was it It, it, it for is. You? It is life defining, and I'll tell you why. Because, you know, as an 18-year-old, when you're in an environment where, after, whatever. 12 years of being told you're supposed to learn things, memorize, mm-hmm. regurgitate, to as a freshman year you're told, come up with new ideas, right? So read books, including things like the Quran, the Bible, the Torah, Lao Tzu, Con- works of Confucius, and then challenge it, right? Like, how do you challenge these things? Uh, and then you got to debate. 50% of your grade is speaking up, not in... Um, not in memorizing exams and practically the other 50% is writing a paper to argue a new point that doesn't exist today. Okay. So it's a very different thing, right? And I think... I think you thrived on that seeing the person well, I today. Yeah, so um, that probably helped build that foundation. Okay. That, you know, curiosity, right? That when you look at something, your, your lens is it isn't what it is today, but you start thinking about what it could be. Because you know, everything, there's always a different angle. There's always a way to improve on it. And and I think that was the foundation where you are thrust into any situation and say, challenge the status quo and make it better. I think that's the unique part about uh, the education experience that I had, right? It wasn't about, you know, reinforcing the status quo by regurgitating what's already been written but challenging it and saying what's your original idea what's your contribute contribution to um humanity in terms of new thought and and it's it sounds daunting but the more you do it the more you get you get the hang of it it's like getting the rug pulled from under you after you know your 12 years of education absolutely yeah As the ride went on, I couldn't help but notice certain parallels. The car, like its driver, thrived on innovation. Both mean serious business, but share a casual, almost playful edge to them. Most of the legwork was done by the car's adaptive features, allowing us to focus on our conversation. Azran's purpose has always been about bridging the divide by using technology to realise his ideas, but never forgetting that people come first. And that's a great example of emotive design, making something like healthcare not a luxury, but a service that's accessible to all. As reluctant as we were to leave the comfort of the car, we switched up the scenery and headed into the studio to continue our conversation. I wanted to talk about Azran's upbringing, his family, his life as a kid, and how it helped shape the person he is today. 
So I found an old picture of Azran as a little boy and decided to take the former AirAsia ex-CEO down memory lane to that point in his life. But what I want to do, what I want to do is go to the very beginning. Okay. And I want you to talk about this little guy here. <laughs> Harsh. <laughs> right? Oh, no. I think, I think he's quite cute. I think Reminds so, Reminds me of my son after not having a haircut for like, I don't know, two months or so. It was the 70s, right? It was the 70s. It was the 70s. You're, yes. in your, you're rocking that batik shirt. Yes. How yes. old were you in this photo? I'm going to guess five or six. Tell me about this little guy here. He's got the same smile as you do now. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so two two stories to share. Um, I was incredibly privileged to have grown up in a household where my parents would encourage me to speak to adults. Okay. Um, so both were university lecturers, and so we would occasionally have dinners where their colleagues would come home for uh, for dinner, and I have to talk to them. They will ask me, how was school? What's this? And what are your thoughts on that? And I think that was, again, foundational because you learn at an early stage to talk to adults, right? It wasn't a household where, where kids were told to keep quiet, but you were encouraged to participate in conversations. Was there a lot of debates, a lot of arguing around the dinner table Can as be. well? Yes. Right. Yeah. So With that, your siblings was... too? That was encouraged. That was encouraged. So, so that that I think was was probably a unique part of my um, development. Now, the other part that I've I have told this story a few times is, um, you know, if I were to try to trace back, why am I a bit screwed up and thinking differently? You know, uh, I I use the story of uh, if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's um, Outliers. Right about how ten thousand hours—that genius is not uh, an innate talent, but it's just Tiger Woods is Tiger Woods because he started golfing at three years old. Mm-hmm. Right, Michael Jordan is Michael Jordan because he made more free throw practices than anyone else did. Right, and one of the interesting stories in the Outliers book is about the Canadian professional hockey team, where there was a disproportionate number of people who were born in the early part of the year, January to March. Why? Well, because in Canada, ice hockey is such an ingrained part of your culture, you start at three or four. And at three or four, if you were born in January, you are actually physically bigger than the kids born in November or December, right? And and because ice hockey is a physical sport, you get noticed earlier. Then you get chosen for a team, you know, the top team. Then you get moved on to from peewee league to minor league to, you know, like you get, you get those opportunities. Um, and I think, in a way, similar for me, uh, except that I was born in December. Oh. Right? So I was the runt in my uh, peer group. I, I was born in November, so I feel you <laughs> right. in that sense, Well, right? But I'm sure there's also a genetic, there's a genetic part to that. So oftentimes, I get left out of uh, football games, for example, at the playground, right? And, and so you're not big enough, you're not good enough. Um, and so you learn how to make up your own games because you can't join the mainstream game, right? And even at high school, as I got bigger, um, all the really big boys were on the football team. Now, I, I love sports and, and I start in field hockey, but the honest truth with that school over there, Sekolah Menengah Tamanton, 
the field hockey team were the guys who didn't make the football team, right? And, <laughs> I think that was the case in many right? boys' schools. And, and, and the, the field hockey team would go, you know, go to VI and RMC and come back with an 8-0 trashing or 12-0 trashing. Um, so my, my, my main point is that because you get left out in an early stage, you learn to be creative. You learn to make up stuff on your own. And also, interestingly, as I look back, I learned to rope in kids younger than me to follow my games. Oh, yeah. I've always been the one who had to line up right at the front of the of the line yes. because I was the shortest, yes, you yes. know, and um, I don't know how it affected me. I think I turned out okay in the end, <laughs> despite this diminutive stature. Right. Um, were you always a good student, though? Because obviously you made your way to right. Ivy League, right? right. And um, did you always have that discipline of wanting to achieve and do well in your studies? Was that how? How was your schooling life like? Yeah, you know, I I hate to say this, but it was a lot more natural and intuitive. Um, I I can't explain it. So I I don't think I put in as much effort as a lot of other people did, because I always had interests outside of school, right? But so you know, we we come back to Stanford, where um, you know, besides. Um, Besides the fact that I spent more time on Ultimate Frisbee, the other thing was I took the bare minimum number of electrical engineering classes to satisfy my electrical engineering degree because that was what was required for me, that I had to leave this place with this piece of paper. had no interest in electrical engineering. I completely maximized all the other classes, from classes in psychology to ballroom dancing to sailing, right, to economics. Um, that was more fascinating for me. And and in the U.S., you have that flexibility. Ballroom dancing, Completely. Though. Yeah, we took, we, I, I, to get credits to to, uh, to graduate, right? So, what, What's your favorite? Is it Paso Doble or Foxtrot? Or? Well, look, so this, this, was, <laughs> this is 91, 1992. Uh, so the I, cha-cha-cha. Uh, uh, it, was, it was quite a, a, a large variety. You know, right. some of us, we can't pick one. <laughs> I can't just imagine you like skimming through the ballroom. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so you've always been... A misfit by the sounds of yes, it. Right? Yes. Right? And, and then now I'm just coming to terms with it that it is okay. Right. It is okay to be uh, to to be that square peg in a round hole. Did you glean anything from that master's or did you actually learn anything additional in engineering? I have no idea what I studied. <laughs> I have no idea what I studied. You were just hitting that frisbee. I, I completely, completely. Right, right. Uh, but interestingly, so this is life. Life may seem random, but there are all these connections that somehow emerge because you keep your options open. So the one thing I knew was, okay, well, I've run out of eligibility. I've got to go out and get a job. I have no idea what I want to do. Um except what I know I did not want to do was engineering. Um, and so what did I did? Well, so I talked to my senior uh, Ultimate Frisbee team members, and one of them said, hey, you know, I'm with Monitor & Company, a management consulting firm. I'm like, wow, what do you guys do? Well, we work on different projects and different industries. I was like, wow, you mean you get to do different things all the time? That's really cool for someone with an attention deficit uh, disorder that challenge uh, for <laughs> me, right? And so I was like, that's really interesting. I really want to do that. So I set my mind to do that. So here's the thing about me. When I set my mind, like, you know, like when I arrived at Stanford, 
um, my first instinct was, where's the field hockey team, right? Because I want to keep playing field hockey, right? And then the Americans look at me and go, dude, only women play field hockey here. Men play ice hockey. I'm like, oh, shit, right? A tropical boy, I can't really make it in, in field hockey. And that's how I discovered Ultimate. But for me, Ultimate wasn't just learning how to throw a disc. I want to be the best at it, right? And even if it meant we would stay up until 1 a.m., just like, throwing 500 times we did that until i got to the team and then from there you're not satisfied getting to the team we want to be the number one team in the country that's kind of how screwed up i am you did your 10,000 hours right and then when it came to okay so this management consulting thing that sounds interesting um i really want to do it great apply for like one interview after the other rejection 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 11 rejections and i just didn't quit but every single time a company rejected me, I would go back and say, well, thank you. Can you tell me what my shortcomings were, right? And then I'll go back and try again and try again and try again. And, and luckily, Booz Allen was company number 12. And, and maybe, you know, lack of talent that year. And they said, well, okay, well, you know, let's just let this wacky guy in. Um, but, you know, again, life also is very... Um, uh, it's by chance. It was just in 1994... Uh, the economy here was booming like mad and, and they were just desperate for people uh, and they were hiring like crazy, right? But three years later, the world changed. So had I graduated three years later, I'd still be struggling for a job. I don't know what I would have started and I don't know where I would have ended. Right. So life is about chances and these um, fortuitous uh, things that So happen. you don't discount these chances. You don't discount these um, episodes of fortitude in that sense, um, Things do actually. Oh yeah, yeah. So, but seizing I, the opportunity, so to speak, seeing yeah, the opportunity. Yeah, but it, I've I've been lucky. I've been just somehow, you know, like right time. I mean, like if you were to look at your CV, right? All right, we went to Busan it, and then McKinsey. It, it's incoherent. I know. <laughs> One way of saying it. Yes. When you went to Bursa, yeah. Astro, and right. then obviously you were right. the first year of AirAsia right. X, right. and um, you started off iFlix, right. and now you're at Naluri Hidop. Right. I mean, that seems like. You seem to have a hobby of tackling dif- difficult projects. Ah, so it might seem to the outsider that it is random and it's just different industries. You know, Azran, a rolling stone gathers no moss, right? You need depth. Has someone said that about you? Oh, plenty. Oh, really? <laughs> but but uh, what they don't understand is because they, the lens that they wear is you judge based on industry. You judge based on the company and therefore if you change industry and change company you must just be kind of just kind of uh fleeting around but there has been one consistent theme throughout which was how do i get better at building businesses that challenge the status quo and it is a craft that to me different industries but applying the same approach meant i could have more depth Right, so there is actually a method to the madness, um, the path of, you know what? I want to define my career as, you know, this guy just wants to figure out how do you make things more affordable and more accessible. So if you ask me to create a premium brand, right, or or build some big heavy infrastructure thing, I would struggle, right. But if you put me in any different industry and ask me to think about how do we make it more affordable and more accessible, I think I'll do a pretty good job at it because that's been my focus. Coming to the end of our conversation, it became apparent that Azran has a positive outlook on failure. 
He sees obstacles as opportunities to learn, adapt and grow into someone better. In 2018, Azran was involved in a serious cycling accident with another vehicle. It would prove to be his toughest challenge yet, both physically and mentally. I was keen to know what lessons surviving something like that could teach an optimist like Azran Osman Rani. It's got to be asked in mm. the sense that, you know, you mentioned that you, you live life with no regrets. Mm. But, you know, going through something major like that, right. it has to be asked. Um, did you feel any regret with that, you know, in, in almost putting your children's futures in jeopardy? Because you could have easily not made it and not pulled through. Right. And that impact is is being felt in your, in your family that you could have left behind. Was there any regret in that? That there... May have, but as I as I shared in the documentary, um, when it was explicitly phrased to me in exactly that context by well-meaning friends and family members, some of which are loosely affiliated with this organization, um, I remember going, "Huh," and and that was a, that was a trigger point because I remember, well, what is important for my children? What do I want to tell my children? And and from being lost when I said, well, actually, thank you for framing it as what do I want my children to learn from it? And I said, actually, what I really want my children to learn from it is not that you go through life avoiding risky situations. You take it on head on because the one thing we've got to learn is how do you get back up when you get hit? And if I could show that I could get back up, that would be a very, very powerful message for my kids that life isn't about avoiding risk, number one, but two, expect to get beaten down, right? Like life is not going to be linear and nice and growth. You will hit roadblocks. You're going to get smacked down hard and it's going to hurt. Um, and the more you get better at getting back up, the more you're going to be ready for life. I mean, it was... It wasn't a very long road to recovery for you. I mean, you were back doing triathlons within six months, yes. which is amazing by any standards. I'm sure your physicians are quite baffled by that, if, if by the very least. At which point during your recovery do you think, you know what, I'm going to shrug this off and I'm going to do a triathlon in six months' time? It, okay, so uh, well, the triathlon part was probably after three months. But, you know, it's not like you can decide to get better. There was a lot of hard work. There was physio practically every single day, you know, where you know, this arm couldn't go more than 90 degrees, right? And it was really painful to do 90 degrees. I couldn't do a single push-up because the shoulder was pretty much kind of crushed. Um, and so it was day in, day out of just trying to move it one centimeter higher and shrieking out in pain and then doing all kinds of rotations day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, until it kind of moved and moved and moved. It must have been depressing as well. Were there you were definitely it, right? periods. So this is where when someone said, well, what's the turning point? And what's the point that you said, suddenly I'm, I'm ready to, um, to do a triathlon? It wasn't one thing. It wasn't like somehow, ding, click, and I'm now on the road to recovery. Right. You know, there are days when you feel good and you're ready and you take on your physio sessions, and there are days when everything goes back dark again, dark, 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 right? And it just takes days to get back up. My first three, four months, I had big vertigo. Like every time getting up in the morning, the five-meter journey to the bathroom was tough, 
right? Like it's as if like the whole world was spinning and you're just trying to like make it inch by inch to the bathroom. And when you get to the bathroom and you sit down the toilet and I had to like take 30 minutes just to compose myself, right? Uh, so it wasn't easy by any means. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm happy that that was a happy tale of redemption because you did do your triathlon and yes. you beat your time from the year before. No, I did not. I so thought, it was phrased differently. Ah, okay. So I was slower than the year before, but I was still uh, within the, the time that I said, okay, this would be a good target to achieve. Which is a feat by any any um, any order, isn't it? Considering that you know you had a major accident before right. that, and of course it resulted in you writing that book. Yes. Thirty days and thirty, 30 years. years, and um, you did that um, documentary as well. Right. Um, was that a form of catharsis for you, and you know, in trying to like relive that and kind of like let it all out, and you know, hopefully ha- yeah. impart some some um, lessons to people who might go through similar. Yeah. Issues? So, so my official explanation for why I wrote the book was, yeah, I made a lot of mistakes in the last twenty years, and I, by writing it down, I hope other people can avoid the mistakes that I made. But the real reason I did it was because it was my therapy. Right. Part of therapy is writing down and trying to make sense of uh, what happened to you. So that was my therapy. Did it make you feel a bit more vulnerable, though, having to speak about these mistakes, having to document it and show the whole world? It's getting comfortable with vulnerability. Are so you comfortable with vulnerability? I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting a lot better at it right now. Right? I'm, I'm completely happy to say, you know what, I'm, I'm a really messed up person and um, I go through a lot of these episodes and so... Uh, many times I need help because I can't do it on my own. Right. Um, now, um, you've, like we mentioned earlier on, you had mm. a very varied CV. Um, and now you are um, with, you founded Nalari Hidup. Right. Is this your final calling? Do you think, I, I have a feeling it's not your final act. I have right. a feeling that you're working on something on as we speak. Well, so as per my book, right, and what I'm really obsessively focused on is what I'm going to do over the next 30 days. After that, I don't know. So if you're going to ask me what I'm going to do in one, mu- one year from now, I have no idea. And the best part of it is I've learned to come to terms with, I'm cool with not knowing what I'm going to do, right? But I'm super clear on what I'm going to do over the next one month. And I'm also super clear at the end of that one month, I keep asking, well, what's changed? What have I learned? And what I'm going to do the next month? So that seems to be a better way of approaching it than to say, oh, you know what? In three years' time, I'm going to do this. Because the danger of doing that is you create tunnel vision. You start to say, this is my path. And the moment you have that path, you somehow let go of other potential paths. And you miss out on things that are happening on the periphery, right? And I'd say in my case, it's always about you know, unexpected things. I never applied for AirAsia X. I never applied for iFlix, right? They were just random things. I never applied for even Astro before AirAsia X. People came to me and said, hey, look, we've got this idea. You know, would you like to be a part of it? Um, and But if I had somehow a plan that says I'm going to be doing this, I'll keep saying, well, no, that's not part of my plan. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stick to my plan. So plans are very restrictive for me. Um, I know a lot of people in your position, though. Um, mm. They don't. They don't like to use the words failure. Words like failure. Pivot. Mm. A pivot is what it is. You know, you, you you're you're switching strategies and no, moving to something else. <laughs> really? I failed. Yeah. Right? And you're comfortable with saying that? Yeah. Right? It's a, it's, it's a way of coming to terms with things because you strike me mm. as a really positive guy. I mean, I see your social media. Right. I see the. I've I've listened to your talks, right. and you know, it seems like you know nothing can phase you. 
it doesn't phase me anymore because you embrace failure, you embrace shortcomings, and you accept that as that is normal, right? And so if you don't let it get to you, you win. Right. So life success in life isn't about I no longer fail and somehow I'm successful and it's this fairy tale image that the media has built up. But success is actually about, for me at least, the way I define it is uh, being comfortable with failure because failure is part and parcel of life. You can't avoid it, right? So you're going to get hit, just get back up, go on to the next thing. And if you do that, you have not failed. Shift, Steer and Strive is a co-production brought to you by Mercedes-Benz and BFM. I'm your host Azura Rahman and this episode was written, edited and produced by Avin Yuvaraj. Additional research and coordination was done by Arif Roos and myself, executive producer Ezra Zaid, with additional sound mixing by Lawrence Graham. To listen to more episodes from the series, including an upcoming interview with Melissa Lau, check out bfm.my forward slash strive or stream it on the BFM app.